42% of LGBTQ plus pupils have been bullied in the last year, double the number of non-LGBTQ plus students. One in five LGBT plus pupils didn't tell anyone that they'd been bullied, with only 33% of them aware of the clear process for reporting anti-LGBTQ plus bullying in their school. These were just some of the headline figures released by the queer charity Just Like Us in November of last year. And today, I'm thrilled to be joined by the charity's chief executive, Dominic Arnold. Dominic has a wealth of experience in the charity sector, working with prestigious organisations such as the Shaw Trust, Stonewall, Mind, and their LGBTQ plus mental health branch, Mind Out, before taking up his current role as CEO of Just Like Us. So, hi Dominic, thank you so much for joining me. It's an absolute pleasure to be able to speak with you today. I thought we'd start perhaps um, talking about your inspirations for your career. You're someone who has worked in multiple different charitable organisations and things like that. So what was it that initially attracted you to working in this sector? Oh, that's a really interesting question. I think for me, the reason why I was really attracted to working in the sector is, I, th- I think like so many of us in the LGBT space, is, is my own experiences as a, as a queer man and going through school not being totally sure of who I was or what was happening. Uh, and I think that when I when I, I joined the charity sector initially working in the disability space, but I sort of always I was always drawn to the LGBT space. And I think to some extent, you know, my eyes were always on the Stonewall website, you know, refreshing, trying to look at what jobs they had. Um, so yeah, I think it was more my own experiences. Yeah, that, that's interesting. I think that you know, we speak to a lot of people, especially, you know, people that come from minority backgrounds and things like that. And it's very much a shared experience within the sort of queer community and things like that. Are there perhaps particular instances where you've then seen kind of a reflection of your work then change, you know, someone's career path to go in a different direction to perhaps how you wish you could have had it at your at that similar sort of age? Well, that's an, I mean, absolutely. There are, you know, when when we go into schools, I, re, I remember when I was quite early in my sort of my journey in the LGBT section, and I went into school and I saw an LGBT group in a school. And I remember just being absolutely blown away that such a thing was even possible. There's, you know, there, there would be there was no one out at my school at all uh, for, at any point during my entire schooling. So the idea that you would have a group of our students talking about being LGBT was just, was just mind blowing. Um, I think that's the trouble with potential. You never know where people end up otherwise, do you? Um, but I like to think certainly that the children that are coming out of those environments now um, just kind of have more options and perhaps aren't, aren't driven to be campaigners on the basis of horrible childhood experiences. That'd be nice. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, and just like us, is obviously an organisation that does a lot of work with schools and stuff like that. I was lucky enough to have um some of your representatives come and visit my school just before um I went to university but perhaps for those that didn't get to have that experience you could perhaps just give a brief overview of what the the core aims and principles of just like us are sure um so just like us believes essentially that um despite huge step forwards for the LGBT plus community over the last 30 years uh actually the experience of LGBT plus young people can still be pretty difficult a lot of the time um, about 50% of schools in the UK still do absolutely no LGBT inclusion work whatsoever. And there are still lots of LGBT plus people in school that grow up thinking that they are the only one, the only person in the world that that has ever happened to. And we certainly believe that places a 
a real burden on them uh, and their mental health. So we want to give young people examples of positive LGBT plus people that they can look up to, make them understand, I suppose, that being LGBT not only isn't the end of the world, but actually can be pretty fantastic. And so we've got three main programs that do that. The first one is called the Ambassador Program, and we train 18 to 25 year old LGBT plus volunteers uh, to go into schools and speak about their experiences as LGBT plus people. More recently, they've started speaking in the media, too, to get those positive stories out even further. And the second programme is called School Diversity Week. and We provide schools at the end of June with an entire LGBT plus inclusive curriculum full of positive examples of LGBT plus people. Um, uh, it, you know, just kind of being part of life, I suppose. Um, whether it's a maths lesson or an English lesson or a science lesson. And then the third programme is called Pride Groups. And we set up LGBT plus and allies groups within schools, uh, both to act as a sort of physical safe space to LGBT plus young people, um, but also give them a chance uh, really to explore their identities, to make friends uh, and to influence the institution. Uh, so, for example, in our really good schools, um, when the schools want to talk about Pride or School Diversity Week, they'll first go and consult their uh, their pride group and ask them what they wanted to look like absolutely i think that's fantastic that um these kind of organizations exist but perhaps it's maybe important dwelling on you know why they exist still um now in sort of 2023 what are sort of the key issues that still prevail um within schools and educative settings that that you and the organization have observed i mean you know, for, for me, and, and it's, it's not something we talk about an awful lot, but I think sexism sits at the root of most anti-LGBT plus um, abuse, violence, etc. I really do. I think that, that what sits at the root of homophobia, biphobia, transphobia is this sense that you're not living up to the expectations of your gender in some way. Um, and we see it in, uh, in all sorts of education settings. We see this. Uh, a sort of reliance on the kind of very archetypal examples of what it is to be a man and a woman. Um, and obviously it plays out in sport, it plays out in the media. Uh, and of course, LGBT plus people for one reason or another don't always fit perfectly into these boxes. Uh, and actually a lot of non-LGBT plus people as well, lots of people um, don't, really, don't really find those systems very helpful. Um, so a lot of schools are now, thankfully, a lot better at talking about all sorts of different things from disability um, to uh, inc more inclusion for people of colour uh, and, of course, LGBT inclusion as well. Um, but unfortunately, we know, for example, that LGBT plus young people in schools are still about twice as likely to be bullied. Um, there's still an awful lot of prejudice uh, out there, sadly, and, and that's what we're here to tackle. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and that sort of rings true a lot to kind of my school experience. I, I came from a, a single sex school and I think those ideas of, you know, masculinity and um, strength in masculinity as well was something that was very much enforced and very much important, but perhaps not in the right ways all the time. So mm. you talk about that link between um, homophobia, biphobia, transphobia and sexism how do we then approach those ideas of kind of, you know, positively owning masculinity within uh, young people or, you know, mm. allowing um, these children to kind of stand up for themselves and own who they are? I, I, th I think being able to own who you are 
requires you first and foremost for you to be who you are, I suppose. And I think that we're still not quite there yet. I think that as soon as children are born, they're given all sorts of uh, signals about who they are and who they should be. My, my daughter is 20 months old and um, we decided to avoid blue and pink. So we just went with lots of other colours. And uh, people think she's a boy when she's out. So people go, uh, oh, how old's your son, et cetera. And I don't, I don't mind, that's absolutely fine. But I did think it was interesting that um, we think of, you know, pink as being for a girl and blue as being for a boy, et cetera. Because it seems like basically all colours are boy colours, unless it's pink, which is definitely not a boy colour. Um, so whatever she's wearing, if it's not a dress, if it's not pink, then people think she's a boy. Um, so I think these signals are sent so incredibly early on that actually who we are takes most of us a very long time to uncover and uh, sometimes even in need of professional help to uncover. We spend almost, well, for me, I feel like I've spent most of my life trying to get back to who, who it is that I am. And I think a lot of LGBT plus people go through that process, having to sort of dig and discover. So the step after that is, is being able to sort of really lean into that space, embrace who you are, celebrate who you are. Um, but at the moment, sadly, in childhood, that is exceptionally difficult unless you fit a very narrow example um, of, of what a person is and can be. Uh, so uh, for me, that's the first thing to tackle. I think gender stereotypes, absolutely vital uh, to look at um, straight away. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you mentioned there kind of that idea of taking you quite a while to sort of rediscover yourself and and kind of find, you know, the, the, the strength of your own identity. Um, is that something that inspired you to kind of follow this line of work? And, you know, what do you think is the most important change that still needs to happen where we don't even need to facilitate this time and this space for you know queer people um specifically to kind of discover and feel comfortable in who they are how do we get to a point where that just becomes norm so i'm i'm asked a lot if we will ever get to to that point and i don't know i'm i'm not familiar with any minoritized community that has achieved parity and my nervousness is is that as a society to some extent those hierarchies always always kind of exist they're incredibly pervasive i do think obviously what we can do is we can tackle prejudice in a much more effective way than we have have done in the past and what we what we see from our schools network is is that sadly a lot of this is is an institutional choice. Um, I, I've seen schools that were that are five hundred meters apart, and some of them use gay as an insult constantly. Young people report hearing every day. School five hundred meters down the road doesn't happen at all. And the reason is that the institutions made a choice to deal with it and to tackle it early on. Um, you know, if you're hearing the word gay as an insult every single day of your schooling and you happen to be gay, um, I, I mean, could we imagine if imagination were necessary, the impact that that has on, on the mental health of young people, having this word being associated with bad, knowing that that word is you and hearing it every single day of your life. Um, before, indeed, in lots of cases, you even know that, know that you're gay. So I think that... Um, my belief is that all schools should incorporate LGBT plus people in all stages of the curriculum at all ages. I really believe that. Um, I also believe that um, that anti-LGBT prejudice, uh, homophobic, biphobic and transphobic bullying uh, needs to be tackled seriously at an institutional level and challenged by every single uh, member of school staff in every single institution. 
And I think that, you know, if we implemented all that, it would not solve homophobia, biphobia and transphobia, but it would reduce it enormously. And what it would do is it would frame people who are homophobic, biphobic and transphobic in a kind of way like people who drop litter, right? Or, or like, like it being just really unacceptable as a thing to do. Um, and I think that, that for me, that that's the solution. It, we're never going to stamp this out, but we can make it hugely unacceptable to the vast majority of people. And sadly, I, I don't know that we're there yet. Yeah. Um, I, I definitely remember kind of experiences at school where you would have, you know, that kind of learning or sort of a, a special assembly or, or lesson or something where, you know, today we're going to talk about X or we're going to talk about the LGBT community, etc., and I think the problem with that is it kind of then makes it a spectacle. It makes it something sort of unique and different and, oh, we're doing something yeah. different today. Like it doesn't then have the same legitimacy as the rest of the, the curriculum. In in terms of so, sort of approaches we can take without, you know, a complete radical overhaul that could, you know, send us all into existential crisis. Um, <laughs> What it, what is the best way of kind of naturally incorporating, you know, queer people, the global majority um, communities within to the curriculum that you know normalizes that idea rather than making it this sort of isolated event? Well, I mean, I, I think in a way you've answered the question. You know, I, I think we need examples of global majority communities. I think we need examples of LGBT plus people throughout the curriculum. And what that means is that you're not doing gay day, as, as we call it. Um, I think it's difficult because some of these one 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 day or one day a year. So, for example, um, you've got um, by day of visibility. They can be really helpful, but they shouldn't be what we're aiming at. For me, they're transitional periods. These things, and I'd include school diversity by the week in this. By the way, I think that you know, in a school that was perfect, in a school where LGBT plus people were included in every aspect of the curriculum. Of course, they wouldn't need school diversity week. They wouldn't need just like us, actually. Um, so in the charity sector, what we're always doing is trying to move people towards a goal where, where LGBT plus people are accepted equally um, with a kind of acknowledgement that it doesn't always get there straight away. So you're sort of taking schools from where they are, which sometimes can be extremely homophobic, even dangerous places for LGBT plus people, and trying to say, well, what's the first thing you're going to do? And now what's the second thing you're going to do in order to get towards that goal? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, my friend and I, we we both love, we're massive history nerds. And, um, you know, a lot of our time in sort of lockdown and things like that was spent, you know, sort of researching and reading all of these, you know, fascinating aspects of history that have just kind of been neglected from general knowledge. And I think the biggest thing that really signified what kind of change that can have is the way in which I see you know other friends that I'll share material with and stuff and the way that they're like oh my god isn't that so cool um and referring to these these individuals and these stories and actually for me now I'm like that that's just normal it doesn't have that that special impact anymore because yeah. it's become normalized I think that's you know something we've got to aim for and I think the curriculum is really important but one thing that perhaps also needs to be addressed is the way in which schools are structured and the staff, you know, the fact that there are so many um, teachers and school workers that are um, LGBTQ plus identifying, but, you know, hide that at work or repress it at work. How do we, you know, approach something like that when 
you know, how, how do we expect children to be able to be comfortable in themselves when teachers still aren't? Well, I, th I think you're absolutely right. And I think one of the troubles is that teachers sometimes have very good reason for being in the closet at school. You know, I speak to teachers all the time that are out in every single aspect of their lives except school. I've spoke, I've met an awful lot of primary school teachers who are told to be in the closet. Now, if you did that in a bank, you'd be in court. If you told someone, they have to be closeted. Um, and yet in schools, through the guise of saying, well, we don't talk about our personal life or whatever, we're still in a position where there are closeted school staff. I mean, we send ambassadors to talk in schools. And sometimes the teacher will say to us, oh, by the way, I'm, I'm actually gay too. It's great, great to see you doing this. And we'll think, wow, well, you're here with them every day. <laughs> Wouldn't it be great? And, and I, I completely agree. You know, normalisation doesn't happen just through the curriculum. The curriculum is an important part of it. But what it means is that people in every aspect of your life are able to be themselves. And what better way to do that in schools than have teachers out with a photo, so say you've got someone with a photo of their wife on their desk. Um, and, and, and it's not an issue. Um, I think the trouble is that at, those mo at the moment, teachers worry that it will affect their career. And I think in some cases they're right. Um, and teachers worry about uh, being targeted by students. Teachers worry about not being supported by the institution. Um, it's in some ways, I think, being LGBT as a teacher in some contexts can be still be exceptionally difficult, more difficult than we know. Mm, absolutely. And I think, you know, th this particular issue in terms of the, the way in which it is hidden is perhaps something that gets a lot of attention in America at the moment. And the way in which, you know, the the dialogue has since sort of been changed that, you know, being open and honest about your personal life is almost an affront to, you know, the the safeguarding processes of that place. Like, why do you think that, you know, we're now going backwards towards this very 80s um, sort of discourse of, you know, being gay is something dangerous and, you know, yeah. um, something that should never be openly owned, discussed um, or communicated? Well, I think I think, frankly, that that it's disingenuous and it always has been. I, I don't believe that people believe that LGBT people are a threat to children, actually. <clears throat> I mean, if they do, they'd be exceptionally misinformed. I think for the majority, there's whole communities of people that have learned that saying think of the children is some sort of excuse um, to be prejudiced against against whole groups of people and communities. So. For me, it is disingenuous and it should absolutely be called out because what you're doing in those situations is you're using child abuse, which is an exceptionally real problem and exceptionally horrible thing that happens to young people. And you're using that in order to further your own discrimination against other people. So, you know, one, one of the more evil things a person can, can do, in my view, it, I, th I think it's a, it really is a disgusting thing to do. Um, so I, th I think that, that it has to be challenged. I think that it's interesting. I, I agree with you, by the way, that I think that it's sad that we're seeing the return of some of these strategies and some of these tactics for a lot of the time, for many years, people would have been scared to talk like that. And it feels like they're a little less scared than they were. Um, so I think that uh, the rest of us have got to challenge those views whenever they come up. And that includes in our personal lives as, as well as our professional lives. And make sure that um, what we're seeing is the last hurrah of that sort of thing, rather than a return uh, to a time that lots of us would rather forget. Mm. And I, I think it's 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 bizarre that we've kind of been able to move on so quickly in the sense that, you know, I was 
lucky enough where once I started school, you know, things like Section 28 had been abolished by then, um, but only just. And actually, I I still find it fascinating to look at the the ways in which legislation like that still has impacts then, let alone, you know, 10 years ago or so when I'm in my sort of like prime sort of formative years. Why do you think that, you know, legislation like that has such a profound impact why do you think that you know that governments have openly said look it was wrong we should never have done it we apologize but is an apology good enough when you know those impacts are still being felt so i think i think the government was right was right to apologize uh because i think that it was at least the acknowledgement of the profound harm that the act did i mean it's interesting there was there was not one one single arrest under section 28 it was kind of a bit of a dud. It was very poorly written, uh, uh, but it was it was so so desperately homophobic in nature in uh, its talk of um, pre- pretended family relationships. So incredibly nasty, um, and of course it led to many many teachers that were absolutely terrified of losing their jobs. Um, I went to I finished school in ooh, 1997, unfortunately. And um, oh, someone I know had a teacher coming to school and wore a badge that said, um, scrap section 28. And the, and one of my friends said, what does that mean? And he said, I can't tell you, that's the point. And I think it's, 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 really, it's really difficult to explain. Uh, the, the clever thing about the act is in a way it hit itself. I didn't, I hadn't heard of section 28 when I was in school. I didn't hear of Section 28 till I left school. It would have been very difficult legally for someone to explain what Section 28 was when I was at school. Um, and that's that's kind of a baffling thought, isn't it? Um, and, and I think that the, the legal control over the language on LGBT people, and I don't think it's even entirely gone. I, you, you know, some of the restrictions we're seeing, certainly in the States, but potentially in the UK around, around trans people, uh, and around guidance, what we can talk to young people about, uh, certainly young people that identify as trans, I think it, it's certainly not off the cards that we could see a return to that sort of thing. So I think we have to be extremely vigilant as a community. And I think as, as um, those of us that assist within the LGBT or LGB community, I have to make sure that we're we're extending um, we're extending our support to trans people who who really really need it at the moment. Yeah, one hundred percent. I mean, I remember. Um... No, I just sort of started secondary school and even sort of visiting the school library and sort of, you know, low key sort of really, really closeted um, and still kind of being like, well, maybe if, you know, there's a book that I can relate to or something that just makes me feel, you know, a little bit more comfortable about myself. And there was nothing really there. And it was only a couple of years later when, you know, students that were braver than me came out before me, um, you know, campaigned for the school library to sort of update its content and have more material available it really kind of reminds me of what we're now dealing with especially with you know trans and non-binary kids in terms of the ways in which they have to fight for what they want and actually it can be incredibly dangerous to force them to make themselves publicly known in that way look i need help i need support but the only way that I can get that help and support is by screaming and shouting and revealing something that I potentially don't want to be public. So what is the the way in which right now we can best support these kids that are, you know, questioning their identity, questioning their their, their gender and, you know, even looking to sort of transition or post-transition and how they sort of, you know, learn to own themselves? 
I mean, I think most of us, for me, the key is that most of us will never have to worry about the kind of the, the sort of the transition end of this, certainly the medical transition end of this. And I think that the job of almost everyone in society, when someone tells them that they're trans, when someone says they're struggling, when someone says that they need help with something, is to listen and support that person. And certainly in schools, there's a kind of hysteria at the moment of, well, what if a person comes in and they want their hair cut short? You know, absolutely so what? What if they want to be known by a different name? What if they want these things? None of these things are important and they're nothing that a school should be concerning themselves about. If a young person chooses to be known by a different name, if they choose to cut their hair short, then frankly, from my position, that is absolutely their business. That's whether, whether they're transgender or not. Um, so I think we have to get back to listening to young people, um, acknowledging that they are better experts on themselves than we are as external, external bodies. Uh, and when they ask for things to make their lives a little bit easier, particularly when they're struggling and particularly when they're exploring and going through something, that we should be as accommodating as possible. Mm, absolutely. And I, I think it, it's so frustrating to, you know, see the defense of, you know, well, they're not ready yet or that, you know, they can't make their mind up when there's so many other things that, you know, young people can do, you know, whether it's it's driving, whether it's getting a job, whether it's anything that's kind of, you know, we consider that in a sort of colloquial sense, you know, major landmarks in our, our life. I can't, we all remember our first job. We all remember a first driving lesson if we had one, things like that, that, you know, we are allowed to do as young people yet you know, all of a sudden that that agency stripped away from from so, so many people. And, you know, in terms of what schools can do, what what is the best way of sort of fostering an environment um, where, you know, just in terms of the, the education side, you know, obviously making yeah. them feel safe and secure and things, but also this could be a concept at that age that many people are not familiar with. So how do we sort of approach that? So I think I think there's a few things schools can do. Firstly, I think visible signs of LGBT inclusion, celebrating School Diversity Week, Pride, LGBT History Month. LGBT young people will pick up on those signals and they do matter incredibly to the people um, that they're aimed at. So I think that stuff is helpful. Um, you mentioned education. I think it's important that educators are upskilled on LGBT people and, and, and how to support them in schools. Very, very important. Thirdly, I think policies, so for example, anti-bullying policies, do need to reflect the existence of LGBT plus people and do need to take homophobic, biphobic and transphobic bullying seriously. Uh, we do need things like transitioning policies in school, I think, just to make sure that young people are supported, make sure that all teachers across the school are dealing with things the same way. And then lastly, I raised the curriculum point earlier, that we need examples of LGBT plus people in the curriculum, in school books, uh, introduced not as a big thing, not as one day a year, um, just in the sense that all of us are just passing through life, trying to live our lives and be happy. And LGBT plus young people are absolutely a part of that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I remember, I think it was perhaps last year, year before, I think it was under the, the Johnson government where there were the changes made to kind of supporting, you know, anti-bullying initiatives and things like that within schools. And that sort of support and funding was you know, almost entirely stripped away, if not entirely. You know, I think the thing with that is, for me, I didn't feel like it changed a lot, which is a shame. I think that those kind of initiatives always felt very tokenistic and very bare minimum because, you know, we put a poster up, you know, so what? That's not going to address the, the institutional problem within schools across the country that, you know, have major problems with 
with bullying and often that comes at the expense of those in minority fields so perhaps from the perspective of of bullying and things like that what are sort of examples that perhaps just like us try to um advise or that you think are better more coherent ways of tackling bullying and homophobia and stuff within schools so i think firstly update policies to make sure they reflect homophobic biphobic transphobic bullying specifically and by name Uh, having a school script can be very helpful so every teacher knows when they hear were gay shout out as a classroom uh, across the classroom how are they how are you going to react to that is it a teachable moment can we have a wider conversation because the last thing you want to do is make it into a swear word where you just say never say that word um, and i think on the whole um what we've seen is that where homophobic biphobic transphobic bullying is taken seriously by an institution where teachers feel comfortable talking about it and um, the rates drop pretty quickly actually um well, to start with, the rates should be recorded, homophobic, biophobic and transphobic bullying in the same way that uh, racist incidents are recorded. So you're not just saying this was bullying, you're actually labelling it and saying what it is. And if you do that, what happens is initially you get a big spike. It's happening more and more, obviously, because you're measuring it for the first time. And then because you're having that conversation, you see that spike start to go down. Uh, so we know that that works. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it, it comes back to, an earlier point that we were discussing about this sort of um, perhaps existential thought of what will it ever end um, type of thing. And if we're looking sort of further up the the educative hierarchy, um, perhaps it's worth kind of talking about, you know, the fact that I think it was in some research that just like us did about the impact of school boards and governors and, you know, statistically speaking, older demographics of people that hold quite a significant amount of influence or power within schools being yeah. barriers to children teachers being comfortable with themselves or promoting you know lgbtq plus inclusion and things like that is that something that we kind of simply need to let that time pass and wait for a more <laughs> sort of I, mean, I don't think so you know and i tell you why um i think that Whereas attitudinally, it's certainly true that you're more likely to be uh, inclusive of LGBT people, you're more likely to have LGBT inclusive uh, LGBT friends if you're younger. That's definitely true. There are LGBT plus people that I know that have amazing allies and older people. And of course, there are LGBT plus older people. Um, and uh, very sadly, there are young people in schools who are homophobic, biphobic, transphobic bullies. So for me, no one's off the hook, you know, you particularly if you're involved in a school, particularly if you're involved in governance, you know, if there's someone homophobic, biphobic or transphobic, and you mentioned safeguarding earlier, homophobic teachers are a safeguarding issue. They really are. Um, if you if, if you hold views that are that discriminatory towards a small group of people and that group of people are represented in that school, then that's a real problem for that institution. And, and that's why I say, you know, absolutely no one should be should be, should be off the hook, in my view. If you feel that way, you have no business being anywhere near a school. Mm, absolutely. And we're, we're seeing a change here, thankfully. But in terms of kind of different forms of discrimination and things like that, you know, I've read so many instances of schools where there are those kind of bad apples and, and things like that, where, you know, they are homophobic sexists racist whatever but in in some regards it's almost as if you know homophobia transphobia biphobia is almost less significant it's worth a sort of slap on the wrist to 
you know, especially if it's a, a teacher or, or part of the school staff, rather than treated as the, the serious discriminatory issue that actually any other form of discrimination would be considered as? What, why do you think that we're still, you know, waiting for that sort of level um, consideration? I mean, it's so diff- difficult because it's different in all schools. And I would say there are still schools that are pretty racist, horrible places. Um, I think that it's the duty of schools to, rather than having a, a kind of any kind of hierarchy, um, because I think I've also, I should, and I should say this, I've, I've, I've spoken to teachers that have said, uh, oh, we can't do LGBT inclusion in our school because we've got some Muslim kids. And I think, well, have you talked to them? Like that that felt feels a bit like it came from nowhere. So people can make racist and faith phobic comments on the basis of LGBT inclusion too. Um, so I think it's the job of all schools not to have a hierarchy in terms of you know who's important and who isn't, and actually address all discrimination and all discrimination equally. Hmm. And and when it comes to to instances like that where there are perhaps schools or you know administrators, head teachers, whatever, who refuse to kind of take LGBTQ plus discrimination seriously mm. or refuse to kind of, you know, actively address it. What what are the kind of things that you do to kind of approach that? Do you work on trying to sort of change that outlook or is it simply a case of doing what we can within these means? I mean, it's very difficult for us to work with anyone that's actively homophobic, biphobic, transphobic, because, of course, they, they won't want to engage with us. So we we focus really more on a kind of celebratory angle, I suppose, and helping schools to make the conversation of LGBT inclusion as easy and as fun as possible, uh, because we believe that, you know, LGBT inclusion doesn't always need to be a kind of po-faced sour conversation that happens because because of statutes and, and that's what the government wants etc cetera, etc cetera. uh you know we've got a vibrant engaging incredible community that's that's been there forever and and, and that's kind of the bit that we want to talk about i suppose um yeah that's our position so I just wanted to take some time now to perhaps talk about some of your more previous work. Um, obviously, you've worked at a lot of different charitable organisations, the Shaw Trust, Stonewall, Mind, places like that. How have you kind of seen your perspective and perhaps the way in which um, you've seen your identity um, change through the work that you've done and through the things that perhaps you've learned um, across all of these different experiences? Oh, that's a really interesting question. So I, uh, my charity work has been all of my work. So I've, I've worked in the charity sector for about 20 years now. So it's difficult to distinguish how my identity has changed through my work versus just getting a lot older. <laughs> um, I think that when I started, when I started the charity sector, in the charity sector, it was probably a lot more direct people we felt like we were giving something to people that was the kind, that was kind of the model um that we were in the charity sector to do good and we were doing good and we would do good for people and there was kind of less of a discussion i think certainly less of a public discussion um about why things were the way they were and i think that one of the biggest changes that's happened during my time in the sector is a bit more of a conversation around institutional discrimination certainly institutional racism, and why why these structures exist in the first place, and actually how the charity sector has at times contributed um, to these power dynamics um, rather than making them better. 
Um, and I think this has absolutely happened in the international space. We've seen um, you know, organisations like Comic Relief who have completely changed their strategy around, uh, around their work as, as a result of that. So I think that that's been really a huge change. I think in terms of my own identity, I think I was never hugely comfortable with my sexual orientation for years. Um, and it was working in the LGBT sector that really allowed me to be as out as I am now, really. Um, so my, my, I suppose it's changed me sort of personally, professionally. The world's changed with me. <laughs> Everything's changed. But I suppose that's what happens over 20 years. <laughs> so you've moved on from Just Like Us. You're taking up a new position at another LGBTQ plus orientated organisation, Open for Business. What was it that inspired you to make that move? And if you could sum up the work that they do for us, that would be brilliant. Of course. Um, so Open for Business is a coalition of global organisations who have made a commitment uh, to support LGBT plus inclusion diversity throughout the world. Um, and I think one of the things that was so exciting about the prospect of going to work there uh, was that for a long time in the UK, we've a bit, well, some of us have been able to take advantage of all the things we've talked about on this call, LGBT groups at work, um, pride, celebrations, etc. Um, but actually, there are a lot of other contexts, a lot of other countries where that sort of thing just is, still isn't possible. Um, so for the organisations that do send people to pride in the UK, the organisations that have LGBT networks, a lot of them are saying, well, what can I do to support these contexts where being LGBT can be a little bit more difficult? And Open for Business essentially supports those organisations to come up with those solutions by developing a really robust research basis for what it's like for LGBT plus people in those contexts and then advocating for those communities. Perfect. Thank you so much. Um, I thought we'd kind of round off um, today's interview just by kind of you know, surmising what it really is that inspires you and you know, keeps you going in this sector. It's obviously one that can be very rewarding, but also very challenging. And obviously to have worked for so many different organizations and things like that. What is it that, you know, keeps you going and keeps you driven to sort of strive yeah. for progress in these spaces? I think for me, um, I'm most inspired by... Uh, by the success stories, actually, by young people that I see that are not facing enormous barriers. Um, I remember I met a young trans man and he said to me, he, he was thinking of taking part in our ambassador program. And he said, um, I'm not sure I can do this. And I said, oh, why not? Thinking he would be talking about nerves or he would be talking about uh, something else. And he said, um, he said, well, life has been all right for me. He said, I grew up, I came out as trans, my parents were fine with it, I work in the local pub, all the punters know, they don't care, uh, I've got this community around me. And I said, my goodness, that's the most phenomenally important story to tell young people. What a wonderful example of how things can and should be. Um, so that's the stuff that drives me forward, really. Um, this, the idea that actually not only is change possible, but that these examples of positive practice of people living happily uh, are already there. They already exist. So all we need to do is learn from them. Absolutely. That's that's brilliant. Thank you so much for your, your time today, Dominic. It's been really, oh, really Thank good. you.